Almighty God, we've just sung that you speak to us. And Lord, sometimes your words are um, so comforting and it's exactly what we need to hear. Sometimes, Lord, your words are challenging and we find it harder to sit underneath them. Lord, help us today to believe that grace, (coughs) your grace does good, that the truth has the power to transform us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us soft hearts and that we would be willing to change in response to your word. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Walter Michel is a professor famous for his experiments in self-control. Around 50 years ago, he created a test um, to see how five-year-old children would respond when left alone in a room with a marshmallow. (laughs) He promised them that if they didn't eat the marshmallow, then at the end of 15 minutes, he would then give them a second marshmallow. And you can imagine some children uh, went for the marshmallow straight away. Others believed in delayed gratification and waited and went for the second one as well. But what was really interesting, you might have heard of that test, what was really interesting was that he then went on to follow those five-year-old children throughout the rest of their lives. As teenagers, the children who were the most self-controlled as five-year-olds, as teenagers, they went on to score highest in their exam results. As adults, they coped better in stressful situations and earned more advanced degrees. Now, as these five-year-olds are now entering their 50s, they're generally wealthier and generally healthier, having had better jobs. Now, if you're suddenly really, really worried about your children, as I am with my toddler, (laughs) don't worry. Because Walter Michel, who's now in his 80s, he's very keen that we don't miss the key point in his findings. He said this in an interview to the New York Times. He said, whether you eat the marshmallow, age five, is not your destiny. (laughs) Self-control can be taught. Now, this is very good news for us, isn't it? Because in many and various ways, we each struggle to have self-control. Perhaps it's over our tongues as we fight not to badmouth our boss or maybe speak ill of our spouse. Maybe we need self-control over our bodies as we fight addictions to junk food when we feel sad or or maybe it's alcohol or maybe it's pornography. Maybe we need self-control over our minds as we fight not to be bitter or, or cynical with life's duties and disappointments. Self-control, we all know it, is what we need. But the problem is, is that much of the time it's not what we want. All too often we follow the example of our culture. We choose self-indulgence, don't we? Instead of self-control. We choose freedom over submission. We choose rights over service. In essence, we choose sin (laughs) over and over again. And really, this was the issue facing the church in Crete, on the island of Crete in Greece. In a culture which celebrates self-indulgence, how can the church learn self-control? Well, look down with me in your Bibles at verse 1. Paul is writing to Titus, his friend and colleague, whom he's left on the island to sort out the churches there. But this is what he commands Titus in verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. You must teach what is in accord 
with sound doctrine. For Paul, the thing which is going to change the church, the thing which is going to change us, is the teaching of sound, healthy doctrine. Now, in today's passage, Paul doesn't actually unpack any of that doctrine for us. He doesn't give us that gospel of grace. He doesn't tell us about the truth. A bit like those five-year-olds, you're going to have to wait until next week for that. So you're going to have to learn uh, delayed gratification. But in our passage today, we are told the effect that teaching sound doctrine will have. The effect both on the church and on the wider community. Three things which teaching sound doctrine will produce. Firstly, you'll see there in your mint green handouts, it will produce a self-controlled church. I love the NIV subtitle here. What must be taught to various groups? Well, that's a fairly good summary, isn't it? Of, because as, as we heard in the reading, he goes through various groups. Let's start in verse 2 with the older men. Verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Now we like to think, don't we, that as people get older in life, everyone sort of naturally evolves into being just more and more lovely, more and more nice. Now I'm sorry to pour water on that myth, but visit any retirement home and you'll see that is not true. If someone has spent 80 years of their life rejecting Jesus, putting the crown on their own head, well, let me tell you, at 80 years old, often they're not very pleasant people to be around. But do you know what? The exact opposite is true of Christians as they get older in life. Because they've had 80 years of the Holy Spirit transforming them, making them more and more like Jesus. Now, Paul is an old man as he writes this. He's an old man. And as an old man, he knows what old men are tempted to be. So he writes here, doesn't he? He wants older men to be temperate rather than grumpy and angry. He wants old men to be full of faith rather than cynical at all the change. He wants old men to be full of endurance rather than tired and and giving up on loving and serving others. There aren't many old men here, but that's what we should aspire to be in, and that's what we want to follow. In verse 3, he moves on to the older women. Look at verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands (laughs) and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, around the time that this letter was written, there was something of a proto-feminist movement sweeping the Mediterranean. It was called the New Roman Woman Movement. It encouraged ladies to abandon their positions as wives and mothers in the home, to be sexually liberated and indulge in all of life's pleasures. You know, to lounge around all day, slandering their husbands while sipping Pinot Grigio. Well, in light of this movement, what Paul writes here would have been as controversial to Cretans back then as it perhaps is for us here today. Now, I don't have time to unpack everything here, but Paul assumes here what the rest of the Bible teaches, that men and women, whilst they are absolutely equal in dignity and value and worth, 
Men and women have a different role in the family and in the church family. So out of a love for Jesus, Christian women here will desire to follow the lead of their husbands, to be submissive to them. Uh, If they have children, they will desire to sacrificially make them their primary concern. Of course, women can have careers. The rest of the Bible makes that very clear, doesn't it? But they are, it says here, to be busy at home. I I take it he says that not because women are tempted to be lazy, but rather because they're tempted to be busy everywhere else but the home. But notice, finally, Paul does not call women to be controlled, you know, by their husbands or by the church. No, rather he urges the women themselves to exercise self-control in response to the gospel that they've heard. Now, I'm aware there's so much more I could say here about gender, so much more to say about family roles. So what we'll do after the service, if you don't mind, we might have a bit of Q&A. Maybe you've got loads of questions just thrown up about that. So perhaps you're a single woman, you're thinking, well, what does this mean for me? Well, why don't we have a bit of Q&A after the service and we can thrash through uh, some of these details um, together. But in verse 6, he moves on to the young men. Look at verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. Social scientists have been noticing something of a phenomenon amongst young men. They call them millennials, don't they? Young men these days. Our culture tells them to just have fun for as long as you possibly can, to have fun while you're young and you're single. And so what do young men do? They they end up just screwing around for longer, they end up marrying later, and end up having children later. I was chatting with um, an employer after church recently. He told me how difficult it is now for him to find millennials who are dependable workers. And he says it's largely because of this culture of prolonged adolescence. Men just want to be kids for longer. Well, as Paul zeroes in on young men, we might expect him to, you know, he starts talking about self-control with young men. We kind of think he's going to talk about sex, right? We think he's going to talk about sexual immorality and porn. That's probably what we're thinking. But Titus, who's a young man himself, he is told to model to the young men various things, isn't he? Look at this. Uh, He says that he's to model to them integrity. Integrity. I guess that's because it's quite easy to forgo integrity as a young man in pursuit of your ambitions, isn't it? He is told to model seriousness. Because as we've heard, it's very easy for men to just simply delay adolescence, delay responsibility, and just not take life seriously, not take church seriously. Uh, He is told to model sound speech. Because it's easy for young men to be impatient hotheads who want everything now and not measured. Uh, Lots here for young men to work on in the area of self-control. But in verse 9, he moves on to a different group of people. Verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try and please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. 
Now again, so much to say here. The whole Bible story, you might know this, is one of movement from slavery to freedom. The story is all about redemption, really. And elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul explicitly condemns slavery. He also encourages slaves, if they're able to legally, to seek their freedom. But here it says if they aren't possible to do it isn't possible to do that. Instead of rising up in violent rebellion against their masters, like many were doing at this point in time, look at the Spartacus film. No, Christian slaves here are encouraged to witness to their masters by means of their self-control. Thankfully, here in the UK, slavery is, is far less common, although I met a young woman last week who is working on that particular area here in the UK. But the issues here relating to slaves uh, regarding self-control, well, they're just as relevant for us here if we're, if we're employees, aren't they? See, instead of doing the very bare minimum, see, Christians will desire to seek their boss's pleasure, to try and please them within reason. Uh, instead of being disrespectful when, when being told off, perhaps, Christians will, will just take it on the chin. And Okay. Instead of pulling sickies or or maybe overclaiming on expenses, uh, Christians will be upright and dependable. So if we're to sort of wrap up all we've seen so far, that the teaching of sound doctrine is going to produce a self-controlled church. But let me be absolutely clear, particularly if you're a newcomer here today, self-control is not the good news, Okay. That's not what saves us. You might have heard the phrase, don't put the cart before the horse. Okay? So horses, cart, the horse, pull the cart, right? If you put the cart in front of the horse, nothing happens. Okay? For some inexplicable reason, Paul decided to put the cart before the horse. He gives us lots and lots of commands here about how Christians should live, in particular to being self-controlled. But it's only next week we're going to hear the horse. Okay? We're going to hear about grace, the thing which actually pulls us along. So if you're new, you've got to come back next week. You must do that. Because, friends, self-control is not what saves us. Rather, having been saved, Christians will desire to be self-controlled. But as we look over the passage again, I want us to notice a second product of preaching the sound doctrine. And that is, it's going to produce not just a self-controlled church but also a training church, a training culture within the church. Now, if you're a parent, I'm sure you give a great deal of thought to your children's spiritual development. Um, I know many of us, we, we read the Bible and we pray of our kids each day. We, uh, we bring them along to church and we take them along to midweek groups because we, they, we want them to have sort of fellowship there, don't we? But of course, our children's spiritual education doesn't begin and end with those formal activities, does it? We also nurture our children through a thousand ad hoc interactions as we discipline them, as we comfort them, as we celebrate with them, as we share our lives with them. Tim Chester, who wrote this book on Titus, which I recommended to many of us, he wrote this, Good parenting often responds to unplanned situations, but with a high level of intentionality. We use the events in our children's lives to shape their character and teach the gospel. Now, if that's true of children, and maybe you're not a parent here, maybe you thought, well, I don't care about that. But if that's true of children in the home, it is exactly true 
of Christians in the church. We see in this passage that godliness and self-control aren't just taught in formal settings from the front or in a small group. No, it is also nurtured through personal interactions with one another. Interactions which are intentional for the purpose of becoming more like Christ. So notice, look down with me again, look down at verse 2. Notice here in verse 2 that it is assumed that older men will be looked up to by younger men, which is why they need to be worthy of respect. Notice in verse 3 that older women, and not Titus, older women are to teach the younger women, presumably because it's actually quite hard to love your husbands and children. You need to learn that from someone who's learned it the hard way. And notice in verse 6, Titus is to encourage the young men by setting them an example. So the assumption here throughout this passage is that older Christians will generally be teaching younger Christians. Now we know uh, maturity doesn't always, um, it's not always uh, directly related to our age, is it? Um, some of us here came to Christ much later in life. Uh, some of us have, have sat under sound teaching for, for not very long at all, so we might feel quite immature. But whatever our age, each of us should be on the lookout for Christians who might disciple us, who might mentor us. Western culture is a bit strange in this regard. We, we, we tend to dismiss the old as, as irrelevant and unimportant. That's why, sadly, so many of us, we throw our parents into old people's homes rather looking out for them ourselves in our own homes. But the Bible teaches what many cultures in the world do, which is to revere our elders, uh, revere them for their experience and their wisdom. I believe that's the, the intention behind the, the ladies' fellowship earlier this month. You might know that in the morning service there, there is a, a Monday morning uh, lady small group and a Wednesday morning lady small group. And one of those groups is largely young mums, with, with, um, with babies and toddlers, and the other group is largely older mums with sort of teenage and older children. Unfortunately, there's quite, quite distinct age groups, and so part of the vision behind that ladies' fellowship was to, to sort of mix it all up a bit, because in reflection on this passage, we think, oh, well, we can't separate the ages out. The older, the older women need to be teaching the younger women, and the younger women need to be learning from, from the older women. As, and what I'd love to see for the evening service here is more and more of the older more mature Christians stick around instead of sort of slowly migrating to the morning service. Wouldn't it be great if we had more older, mature couples coming here to disciple us, to mentor us as they've gone through things which we're going through already? Well, the other assumption in this passage, notice, is that the church doesn't just meet for one hour and a half on a Sunday night, but rather it seems they're actively engaged in one another's lives. They're intentionally responding to unplanned situations in order to shape one another's characters and teach the gospel. Now I know what you're thinking. You might be thinking, ah, oh, no, Andy's now going to tell us we should all be doing one-to-ones and, and hang out with each other. I'm way too busy to spend more time uh, holding the hand of a younger Christian all day. I, I, don't, I, I have too much on my plate. I'm too many, too many other plates are spinning. So I think we need to think imaginatively about this. The Bible does expect that we as a church will be in each other's lives, which means we need to think, well, when can we share our lives with each other then? 
So let's say you've got a half an hour commute each day into the city. Why not arrange to meet with someone at that tube stop to travel in with them? It's dead time. You can chat with each other on the tube in, pray with each other, encourage one another as you're squished together like a tin can. Um, you can meet up for lunch or, or coffee in the city. I, I'm, most afternoons I'm in the city and I always say, guys, Let, let's meet. And most people say, yeah, brilliant, I have time in the city. They probably don't have time when they're at home because they've got to see their families, but meet up with each other in the dead time. Um, if you go to the gym, don't go to the gym on your own. Go to the gym with a friend. Chat while you're jogging along on your treadmill. Um, talk about Christian things. Um, as you sort of sweat drips off you, you can talk about what it means to follow Christ. You can walk your dog together with someone. You can invite people around for meals together. You've got to eat a meal, eat with someone else. Just think imaginatively. There's so much time we could spend with each other when we're actually just on our own. So I'm eternally grateful for the men in my life and the women in my life who, who did just that. Who didn't just share the gospel with me, they shared their lives with me. I think of a guy called Will. I was a fresher at university. Uh, very fresh. Very, very annoying. And um, Will would open up his home to me each, each week. He would cook me a meal, usually fish fingers and chips or something. So it be easy. We would play worms on his PlayStation. And, uh, and then we would open the Bible up together and look at it together. We, he, me and Will are still really good friends. I think of Duncan and Laura. I, I lived with them for, for a year when I was a ministry trainee. And um, I learned from Duncan what it means to be a, a, a godly husband. What it means to be a, a godly father. You know, I really close friends. He's a minister now up in Sunderland. I think of my dad, who um, I, I see now most weeks because we tend to drop the kids off with him. But uh, my dad's in his mid-70s and he is a model of endurance in ministry. He, he is, he's exactly verse 2 here. A model of endurance. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to spend time with him. May I ask you, who, who are you following? And who is following you? And you might think, well, no one should follow me. <laughs> no one should follow me. But the fact of the matter is, you are being followed. There will be Christians in your life who will be looking at you and thinking, yeah, that's the way I should do it. So the question is not, will you be a model? Will you be an example? But rather, what sort of model and what sort of example will you be to those people in your small group? to those people in your office, to the people here on Sunday nights. You see, if sound doctrine is preached, as I hope it is here on Sundays, it will produce a training culture. And that's one of my prayers for St. John's, that we get better at becoming a training church. Now, the third effect of the gospel, much more briefly, as the gospel is faithfully taught, is that we will become not just a self-controlled church, not just a training church, but an attractive church. Now this might surprise you. If I interviewed you coming in here on a Sunday night and asked you, what do you think makes us attractive as a church? I don't know what you would have said. Maybe you would have said, oh, it's the food. It's the international food uh, that we have here every Sunday night. That's what makes us attractive. Maybe you say it's our welcome. Maybe you say it's the, the preaching. No, maybe not. Um, maybe you say it's the music. I, I don't know what you'd say would make, what makes us so attractive. Well, our passage says that the most attractive thing about us is our self-control. Now, none of you would have said that, would you? Look at the very end of verse 5. What's the effect of self-controlled women in the church? The effect of the end of verse 5 is so that no one will malign or speak badly against the word of God. 
At the end of verse 8, what's the effect of self-controlled young men? Well, it's so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. At the end of verse 10, what is the effect of self-controlled slaves or workers in the, in the workplace? At the end of verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. It's funny, isn't it? The world won't like the idea of self-control. They won't like the idea of submission in a marriage. They won't like the idea of workers being subject to their bosses. They won't like any of those ideas because self-control, submission and subjection are basically the exact opposite of sin, which is what we love. (laughs) They're not popular ideas, are they? But do you know what? When those ideas are demonstrated in practice, they're stunningly beautiful. See, when you invite um, your colleague round for uh, lunch and they see, you, they, they see the way you relate to your flatmate and tidying up for them, that is attractive. When you um, go for a walk with, with, an, with a non-Christian couple, maybe you're walking your dog, and they see, they see the way the husband self-sacrificially serves his wife, that's attractive. When your colleagues in your workplace are bitching and moaning about the boss, but, but you don't join in, that's attractive. A huge survey was um, taken last year, a huge survey, thousands and thousands of people across the UK, and they're, they're assessing British attitudes to Christians. Did you know this? 67% of people in this country know a Christian whom they like. Now that's good news, isn't it? That means 67% of your people who know you like you. Okay? That, I think that, that's pretty good. It shows that exactly what we've seen here. Christians will be attractive. But it goes further. Of those people, that 67%, 80% of them don't want to know any more about Jesus. But 20% of them would read the Bible with you if they were asked. So that means of the people who know you as a Christian, the people you're witnessing to, if you ask them, do you want to read the Bible with me? Can I, can I share with you a verse what I believe? Four, of them will knock, four out of five will knock, knock you away and say, no thanks. One out of five will say, you know what, yeah, I'll be, I'll be up for that. I'll be up for that. That means there are 7.5 million Brits who are simply waiting for a Christian to go up to them and say, can I share with you what I believe? Can I open a Bible with you and just share what I believe? See, Christians will be wonderfully attractive. I'm aware that certain parts of this passage might sound very unappealing to our culture, and that's why I want to have a bit of Q&A afterwards. Maybe you've got issues you want to thrash through. But friends, we've got to believe this. The gospel life is the good life. So friends, if we live out the truth, if we are bold in speaking the truth, then people will be inexorably drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So today was part one of a two-part sermon. Today is the cart, next week is the horse. So you really need to come back next week, but I just want to end with a spoiler. I want to end with a little bit of a spoiler. I began this sermon with, with those words from Walter Michel. He said, whether you eat the marshmallow aged five is not your destiny. 
Self-control can be taught. Now, we all know now that self-control is what is expected of us as Christians. The question is, what will actually make us desire to be self-controlled? What is going to teach us self-control? You see, fear of letting down other people in church will not make you more self-controlled. Fear of condemnation from God will not make you more self-controlled. Legalism and law and setting rules to yourself will not make you more self-controlled. What will? Well, only one thing. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live (coughs) self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. Friends, let me emphasise once again, this passage was the cart. Come back next week for the horse. What I don't want you to think is that self-control saves you. It does not. It cannot save you. Jesus saves you. Grace saves you. And it's that salvation which makes us want to be self-controlled. So come back next week. Let me pray. Almighty God, we're all too aware of just how so so much of our lives and so many aspects of our lives are out of control. Maybe we self-indulge in things we know we shouldn't. Maybe we're not the the model or example to others perhaps we should be, whether here at church or whether in our offices or workplaces. But Lord, we want to be people of self-control because we want to be like Jesus. So Lord, please, we pray, convict us this week over areas where we need to repent. But more importantly, Lord, would you fix our eyes on grace? Would you fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ? And following his example, would we desire to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age? And we ask that for his glory. Amen.